Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Secrets of Fail series where we're shining a light on our big, hairy, audacious failures. <laughs> and with us in the, in the, on the line in the hot seat is uh, none other than the co-founder and CEO of an amazing company called Facet. That's facet.com, as you would say. It is as you spell it. Um, Anders, welcome to the show, bud. Hey, Matt. Thanks, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's, been, it's a privilege. It's all mine, man. So why don't you kick us off with the uh, elevator pitch? What are you guys up to there at uh, Facet? Absolutely. So um, Facet's a, a direct-to-consumer fintech company, and we do financial planning and financial advice for people that wouldn't typically work with a traditional advisor. So we're not going after the millionaires in the market like every other financial advisor is. Um, we exist to basically help people who need the help, but don't have great uh, solutions with what the industry has to offer today. So we look at every aspect of someone's life. Um, if you think about sort of what's on offer in the in the rest of the financial services world, people are going to talk to you about managing your money and saving for retirement. We look at it very differently, which is financial wellness is wellness. And if you work with an expert and with a company that's powered by experts like we are, then you're going to have a much better shot at living a better life today, uh, having a having control over your entire financial picture than just one or, or two aspects of it. The other thing that's different about us is that we charge a subscription fee. So we don't charge a fee based on how many assets you, we, you, you have or what your income is or uh, products that we sell you. Um, we charge a flat annual subscription that is uh, totally transparent, and it really puts us in a situation where we can give totally unbiased advice. Um, and so we've been uh, we started the company about seven years ago. Um, we've we've been uh, you know had, had good success in the last uh, in the last few years, and you know grown nicely. Now serve about eighteen thousand customers across the United States, um, and we're just getting started. Yeah, man, your growth trajectory is ridiculous. I should have put you on uh, on the Secrets of Scale series. You know, you're on the wrong show, bro. <laughs> we, we can come back, come back and do that one next. Yeah, yeah. man. And uh, I just want to double click on that idea, right? That uh, financial wellness is wellness. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. I mean, if I think about all the stress of the average person, myself, entrepreneurs, it's financial, dude. It's like that's you know, cash, right? Yeah, it's it's um, it's the the number one cause of divorce in in the US is uh, is financial strain. Um, there are a huge number of studies that are coming out that basically show that uh, if you don't have your financial life in order, it actually hurts you physically. Like people who have financial stress end up having significant um, physical health issues. And uh, and it's and it's it's not something that is um, that that is readily accessible to the vast majority of, of people. Something like seventy five percent of Americans don't have access to affordable, unconflicted, and high quality financial advice. You usually get one, maybe two, but you can't get all three at once. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we we really see an enormous enormous need. And you know what's cool is I mentioned that you know we we work with about eighteen thousand individuals at this point. Seventy five percent of them have never worked with a financial advisor before. So for me, that's that's my favorite stat because it means that we actually really are sort of creating a market where um, there's enormous need, but not a lot of good solutions. Yeah. Well, kudos to you, Bed. So look, let's get on to the meat and the potatoes of this uh, series. So what is your story of fail for our audience around the world today? I was thinking about this over the weekend. And, you know, I think, as you know, as an entrepreneur, 
anytime you're starting a company or going on trying to do something that hasn't been done before, there's an unbelievable amount of failure that comes with it, right? It's just it's part of the part of the journey, and there's the the sort of whole test and learn um, uh, dynamic that, that comes with starting a company. And so, you know, I was sort of listing out all of the the small failures that and big failures that have happened along the way, but I thought like the one that was probably the most important and the one that um, has has the potential to do the most damage, but if done right, can can actually uh, create the most value is around the hiring process. And I think back to um, over the last you know six years since we really have started scaling the team, um, we've made some really bad hires along the way. And you know, obviously, I'm not going to name any names, but um, you know, we've we've made some mistakes, and and I have made some mistakes particularly around being opportunistic, like, hey, this is someone with a great resume who I think that they can come in and like really move the needle. Um, even though I don't have a job that's open for them right now, like I'm going to create a job because I want this person in the company. Every single time I've done that, it's ended in a complete disaster. We, we haven't run an objective process. We haven't said, okay, here's what we actually need to accomplish. And here's the criteria of the people that are uh, of, of the person that's going to be a great fit for this. Um, instead, I've, I've, I've sort of said, okay, here's the person. Let me fit the rest of the, um, you know, the the, the rest of the, uh, the the work around that person. And that that has been a failure every time. Um, at the at the sort of like you know easiest like the the, the least damaging um, piece. Uh, you know, we we've just ended up like making a bad hire and ending up you know not moving the metrics. Uh, in the way that we needed to over a period of time. In the most damaging, you know, you can get into lawsuits, you can get into extreme culture issues and challenges, uh, you know, brand risk and reputation risk. And, you know, unfortunately, we've we've had to deal with all of that um, as, as a result. So so I would say if I had to like pick one category where, uh, you know, I feel failure the most, it's, it's in bringing the wrong people into the fold at the wrong time. Mm. Yeah, you and you and me and everybody else, Betty. <laughs> yeah. So what are, what is your what have you learned about hiring the right people or putting the right people on the right bus seats? Uh, this whole idea of like, you know, people are the biggest asset in any business, but you know, if you're hiring the wrong, it's kind of like it's it's almost like venture capitalism. It's kind of like I have the subjective sense as to whether I like this person or not. Uh, your yeah. resume sounds good, but actually, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. So, so a couple of thoughts on this. I mean, number one is, um, and you just said the word subjective, which I think is, uh, is a, a really important concept to actually move away from, which is how do you turn the hiring process into something as objective as possible? So at this point, when we hire someone, especially someone senior, we have a rubric of like, okay, here are the things are going to be working on. Here are the things that need to be accomplished. Here are the skill sets, and um, uh, you know the skill sets that this person is going to have that, like we think, are going to be most important. And then you got to crowdsource it. So it's not just what's my, me as the CEO. What does my gut say about like what you know what if this person is going to be good or not? Um, but you know we need six to eight people giving input and scoring along the same rubric. And then you start to build a, an actual data set that you can look at and say like, okay. This is, you know, a per this person is generally on track, or this person is not on track with with what we're looking for. Um, so that would be that that would be number one. Um, and then number two is uh, don't 
sleep on the cultural implications of bringing someone in. You can bring in someone who's incredibly talented, very smart, but if they're an asshole, it's going to completely mess up your culture. And we've, we have made that mistake before too. Um, and, uh, and it just, it, it really, it really screws up. Uh, uh, it, and that's the one actually that I think is probably more damaging um, that, uh, that like it, it sets a tone with the rest of your team that this is behavior you're willing to tolerate. And that can have all sorts of really bad sort of downstream ramifications. The last one I would say is that a false positive is far worse than a false negative. So like if you hire the wrong person, um, it takes like six months to a year to undo that damage. By the time you learn they're the wrong person, get them out and then uh, bring in a replacement and undo any of the, you know, the, the work that's been done. It's, it's far better to miss on hiring someone great and avoid uh, hiring someone terrible than, than the other way around. Yeah, such good advice. So let's go back to the future. If you could go back okay. in time and do things differently, whether it's hiring or you know, something else, what would you do differently and why? Man, I mean, where, where do I even start? You know, I, I often think about this. This is, Facet is the first time that I've been the CEO of a company. And so, you know, I'm learning on the job and I often think about, oh yeah, you know, if I, if I ever start another company, I'm going to shortcut so many, so many mistakes, mistakes, spend a lot less money and, um, and, you know, a lot less time getting to, you know, getting to, to sort of an, an exit trajectory. And then I talk to second and third time entrepreneurs and they're like, yeah, no, you, you just make different mistakes. <laughs> it's, it's always the same. Um, but I would say, um, you know, if I could go back and tell myself, uh, you know, one thing, and, and this actually goes hand in hand with, with hiring is, um, don't worry so much about imposter syndrome. Uh, that's one that I think every entrepreneur and, and sort of a fellow CEO I talked to suffers from this to a certain extent, some, some more than others, but that actually does really directly impact the hiring, uh, uh, process as, as well, because, you know, as a CEO, you have this really unique position in it and you can hire people who are better than you um, at their specific jobs and they'll come and, and do those specific jobs. The, the CEO is the only job is the only position where you can actually do that. Like if you're a VP of marketing, you can't go out and hire an SVP marketing is better than you to, to, to work for you. Like it doesn't work like that, but the CEO, you're actually supposed to find better people than you and, and, and then sort of unleash them. And oftentimes, especially for first time CEOs, that's intimidating because you're sitting in a management meeting and you got six people around you who are all better and more experienced than you are. And you're sitting there thinking, man, like why, like why should I tell anyone what to do or why should I be the one setting the tone? And the thing that I learned is that um, while that is all true, none of them have the experience of being CEO. And so actually like for, for me sitting in that room with those really talented people um, you know, it's, it, 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 at one point I had a realization that it's like, well, I'm actually the only one here with, you know, five, six, seven years of experience as CEO. So I'm actually uniquely suited to lead this team. And I think that realizing that earlier on, um, would have made a big difference in terms of sort of the general uh, function of the team and also our ability to, to sort of set clearer direction and clearer goals and move towards them much more quickly. Mm. Yeah, I've had that. I still have imposter syndrome. Like I remember when yeah. I released my first book, which went on to become a bestseller. Um, I uh, I was I was interviewing, being interviewed on radio, and uh, you know, and I and I said to them, like, 
I'm petrified. I have so much anxiety about like releasing a book because like you don't get to edit it later. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like a window of time where my perspective or my point of view was X, you know? And so that will mm-hmm. change inevitably. So if you fast forward 10 years or 15 years and you look back and you say, well, how much have I learned? How much have I grown? Would I, do I still think the same things? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's, but it's, but it's really about this idea of imposter syndrome. That's all, that's all that's driving it. It's this idea of like, I'm going to be found out one day to be a fraud. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, I, you know, we're, we're a a large and growing company and we've raised close to $200 million of venture capital. And like, I think any entrepreneur just starting out would look at fast and be like, wow, that's, you know, to the extent that we're a success story, you know, that there are success stories at our stage, you know, we, we, we probably fall into that category, but, um, but I wake up every day and I'm like, can I keep doing this job? You know, is there like, is, 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 am I going to keep scaling with this job? And that's one of the really interesting things about entrepreneurship is that, you know, you wake up and every single day you're in the biggest job of your life. And so, um, you know, so it's not a static corporate job where, you know, the company's grown at 3% a year and you're just kind of, you know, doing the, the process and, and kind of, you know, running through the motions, like, you know, every single day, um, it's a, it's a new ch- set of challenges and it's incredibly rewarding and invigorating. I think if, you know, if you have the right mindset for it, but, uh, but it's also terrifying and, um, and this, you know, back to the sort of point of this, the, the subject matter of this whole show is like, you know, the personal failure in an extremely public and, and embarrassing way is just around the corner at any point. Right. Um, and that is, <laughs> That is, you know, that, that's the, the, the road we walk, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your advice to other CEOs when it comes to the, their relationship with failure or the, the importance of failure and becoming successful to reach the kind of scale that you guys are at in terms of facets? Um, there's there's a, a great quote from a movie. I, I think it was the, the most exotic Marigold Hotel, which was um, – it, it will all be all red in the end. If it's not all red, it's not the end. And uh, and what I've found is that, you know, not just with the hiring stuff we talked about, but just any any time that, you know, some, some door closes or something turns out differently than you wanted it to or than you expected it to, um, it's not the end. And in fact, the path that opens up beyond it ends up being uh, you know, just as good, if, if not better. And I can point to a lot of examples in my life like that, um, you know, where I went to end up going to college, uh, you know, how we ended up starting facet, like there's, a, there's a whole bunch of examples there. Um, and so it's, it's very easy, especially when you're in the middle of the struggle, when you're deep in the weeds of, of starting a company or growing a company, um, you know, every day is, is an opportunity to get really discouraged and, uh, and, and, you know, taking time to look back and see of uh, all of the, the roads not taken uh, and, and all the roads that were taken that were unexpected. Um, you know, there's, there's a reason for it and it's, it, it, it will all work out in the end. Absolutely. And is, is there a, are there books or tools or resources that you recommend other entrepreneurs to use or consume on their personal journeys? Two of my favorite books on entrepreneurship are Zero to One by Peter Thiel and The Hard Thing About Hard Things um, by uh, Ben Horowitz. Um, I don't know that those are particularly unique insights. They're pretty popular books on entrepreneurship, but they're great ones. And then the other one is um, that it's helped, the other resource that's helped me a lot is the, the Farnham Street blog, fs.blog. 
So it's a whole uh, website and community based on making smarter decisions, and that's helped me immensely. Um, and, and, you know, at, at its core, the CEO job is really a job of investments and decision making. And so, you know, being smarter about sort of how you think about that is, is, is really helped. Yep. Decision making is obviously key. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I'll put that resource up on uh, screen for everybody. That's fs.blog. Cool. Anderson, thanks so much for being on the show, dude, and uh, lending your perspective. And, and, you know, congrats on, you know, first time CEO, dude, raising 200 bar, you know, going after a massive consumer market, doing something that's mission and purpose led, you know, that's all accolades on you, buddy. So, you know, fuck your imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if I could say that on, on your show. But no, you I'm, can, I'm glad I can. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> awesome, bud. Well, look, thank you for being here. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you all again soon. Ciao.